Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light of what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I'm sure that you've seen different awareness activities and fundraising activities going on to help support people who are currently in situations of domestic violence or who have escaped those situations and are trying to build new lives. And I wanted to take the opportunity this month to record an episode that focuses on domestic violence. Ten years ago, I thought that I knew what it was, although my understanding and awareness was not really based on anything tangible or concrete. I had had a few little incidents in my first marriage. I had watched my sister deal with an abusive relationship back when I was in my early 20s, but... I had not had any direct experience with some of the most common attributes of domestic violence situations, so I was pretty ignorant back then. In the intervening years, I've started to do quite a bit of work with women who have been in those situations, women who are attempting to get out of them, and women who have survived those situations and gone on to build new lives. And I've been working with them in the area of self-defense and self-protection and what they need to know and want to know so that they can protect themselves either in the situation they're currently in or prevent any future situations. So my understanding and awareness has changed a lot because I've been able to work with a lot of people who have been in these situations. And I just want to share some thoughts on that with you today. Let's start with a little bit of context. Domestic violence is indiscriminate. It can affect anybody of any age, any ethnicity, any economic class. It can affect you whether you are straight or gay. It is not just physical. It can involve threats or damage to your emotional health, your financial security, and more. Some examples of domestic violence include stalking, which is following, surveilling, contacting or harassing another person against their will in a way that's meant to threaten or intimidate. It includes criminal damage to property, so destroying or damaging your personal belongings, regardless of whether or not the damage was intended. It can be unlawful restraint, kidnapping or physically restraining you, refusing to allow you to leave your home or your property. It can also involve criminal trespass, So knowingly interfering with or preventing someone from using their property or possessions. Domestic violence that becomes physical is actually classified as assault or a battery. And there are different levels of that too. Simple battery is intentional physical contact that is meant to insult or provoke. Battery is intentionally causing substantial physical harm. Simple assault is attempting to cause violent injury to another person, and aggravated assault is attempting to murder, rape, or rob another person while using a gun, a knife, or another type of weapon. Now let me give you some statistics. This information comes from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. On average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. 
And that means that during one year, that is more than 10 million women and men. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence, intimate partner sexual violence, or stalking. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner that might include something as, quote, simple as slapping, shoving, or pushing. And one in seven women and one in 25 men have been injured by an intimate partner. One in 10 women have been raped by an intimate partner. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any data available on male victims of rape. One in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence, and that includes beating, burning, and strangling by one of their intimate partners in their lifetime. And one in seven women and one in 18 men have been stalked by an intimate partner to the point to which they felt very fearful or believed that they or someone close to them would be harmed or killed. Now, I could give you some more statistics about rape and stalking and homicide, but I think what I've given you is plenty to paint the picture. So now that there's a little bit of context in terms of defining and providing some statistics about domestic violence, let's talk about things to be aware of in different stages of the domestic violence cycle. Early on, before you're actually committed to the relationship, when you're dating, for example, and before any violence has occurred, there may be signs that you can observe that will tip you off that things are not quite what they seem. Understand that people who do commit domestic violence and who are abusers can be very, very good at grooming potential victims and can be quite subtle at starting to manipulate a potential victim into a position where they have control. Some ways that you can understand how an abuser may try to exert power and try to control you include coercion and threats, isolation, emotional abuse, economic abuse, denying that anything is happening or blaming you for it, gaslighting, and acting like the master the one in charge, and the decision maker. There are quite a few warning signs, also known as manipulations and tools that abusers can use in order to start to exert that power and control over you. I'm going to share with you a list of what was labeled abuser tricks. These are something that I discovered through an organization in Maine that serves women who are experiencing domestic violence. So one of the signs is equating jealousy with love. The abuser questions the victim about who the victim talks to, accuses them of flirting, and becomes jealous of time spent with other people. They may start calling you frequently during the day, drop by to kind of check in on you, even refuse to allow you to work, check on your car mileage, or ask their friends to kind of keep an eye on you so they know what you're up to. Another warning sign is equating controlling behavior with concern. In the beginning, an abuser may attribute controlling behavior to concern for you. 
For example, they may be concerned about your safety or worry about your decision-making skills. And as this continues, the situation gets worse and the abuser can actually assume all control of your finances or of your ability to come and go freely. So the areas that they can try to exert control will actually expand and the level of control can get much deeper. A third set of warning signs are quick involvement. So really rushing you to make a commitment to live together or even to get engaged or married. They may pressure you to really commit to the relationship before you're ready to do that. And they may try to make you feel guilty for wanting to go slower or even wanting to end the relationship. A fourth warning sign are unrealistic expectations. When an abuser expects you to meet all of their needs and to take care of everything emotionally and domestically, that is pretty unrealistic. Isolation is another warning sign. An abuser will usually attempt to isolate you by cutting your ties to anybody who might be able to provide you some support or some resources. They may accuse your friends and your family members of being troublemakers, and they may actually start to control your access to a car or to going to work or even something as simple as having a telephone. Another warning sign involves blaming, either blaming other people for problems So that looks often like somebody's out to get the abuser or somebody is always in the way of the abuser getting what they want. Quite often, the person who is on the receiving end of the blame is you. It's the potential victim. Another aspect of blame is blaming for feelings. So an abuser will often use feelings to manipulate. So they might use language like, you're hurting me by not doing what I want or you would do this if you loved me. A sixth warning sign is hypersensitivity. An abusive person is usually quite easy to insult. They perceive even the slightest setback as being a personal attack. Warning sign number seven involves cruelty to animals or to children. An abuser quite often will punish animals or children and be quite insensitive to their pain. They may expect children to do something that is way beyond their ability. For example, they might get really, really angry at a toddler for wetting their diaper. Or they might be so nasty to a child that they make them cry. And of course, along with being cruel to children, they quite often are quite cruel to the animals in the house, whether that's a cat or a dog or a child's pet like a rabbit. Cruelty to animals is another really big warning sign. Another big warning sign is the, quote, playful use of force during sex. That could include restraining you against your will, acting out fantasies in which you're helpless, initiating sex when you're asleep, or demanding sex when you're tired or ill. They will probably show little concern for their partner's wishes and often can use sulking or anger or threats to manipulate you into complying. Along with that, There may be some very rigid sex roles. The victim, who's almost always the woman, will be expected to be the servant and is typically seen to be inferior to the abuser. 
the one who is responsible for all the menial tasks and who is quite often characterized by the abuser as being stupid or being unable to be like a real person or a whole person without their relationship. More warning signs include verbal abuse and threats of violence. Verbal abuse could just be saying things that are intentionally cruel and hurtful, cursing, swearing, or degrading you, or putting down your accomplishments. And any kind of threat of physical force is meant to control you. Most people do not threaten their partners, but an abuser will excuse their behavior by saying, well, everybody talks like this, or everybody does it. Another unusual sign is what is typically called a dual personality or the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde personality. That's the person who can shift very quickly from their moodiness or their explosive, nasty behavior to being very congenial and friendly and nice. They can put on one face in one situation and quickly switch to the other. This is often why it's difficult for friends and coworkers to accept that somebody is an abuser because they only see the congenial side and don't realize that there is a completely different aspect to that person's personality. More potential warning signs include breaking or striking things. That may be something like punching a wall or throwing something and shattering it. It could even be used as a punishment if you don't do what they want by breaking something that is really important to you. It's generally to terrorize you and force you to submit and comply with what they want. In the same way, using any kind of force during an argument is a really big red flag. That might be having them hold you down, physically restraining you so that you can't leave, pushing, shoving, and forcing you to stay present while they make demands by saying things like, you absolutely will listen to me, are shows of force that normal people will not use when they're arguing. And of course, the last really major warning sign or red flag is if that person has a history of battery in the past. An abuser will most likely beat and abuse any partner if they are involved with them for long enough. It's not the situation that turns somebody into an abuser. It's them. And so if somebody that you know that you are thinking about getting involved with has a history of abuse and battery, that is a very major sign that you don't want to be involved with them. So those are some of the ways that you can recognize warning signs before it's too late. If you are already in a relationship and violence has started to occur, there is a pretty clear pattern of how things unfold over and over and over again. There's a cycle that's been pretty well recognized since the 1970s as having four parts, four stages. The first stage is usually a tension building phase. So tension, stress, and strain in the relationship start to build. That might be over very common domestic concerns like money or dealing with the children or your jobs and work. Probably starts with verbal abuse. The victim usually tries to control the situation by complying, by pleasing the abuser, or trying to avoid the abuse. And unfortunately, none of that really stops it. Eventually, the tension reaches a point where physical abuse begins. 
And that's phase two. That is when the violent incident actually occurs. So when the tension reaches a certain level, the physical violence begins, and it's usually triggered by something not the victim's behavior. Usually it's something external or something about the abuser's state of mind that initiates the violence. So it tends to be unpredictable and not something that you as the victim can control. The incident might be an assault, it might be beating, it might be restraint, property damage, threats. It could be any of those, but there is a violent incident in this phase. Afterwards is the third phase, which is a reconciliation or a honeymoon. And in this period of time, the abuser acts quite ashamed of his behavior or her behavior, usually expresses remorse and tries to minimize the abuse, sometimes even tries to blame it on you. They may exhibit loving or kind behavior, followed by apologies, and may actually try to convince you that the abuse is not going to happen again. This kind of behavior can actually strengthen the bond between the two partners and can sometimes persuade the victim that leaving the relationship is not necessary. Usually this honeymoon phase is followed by a period of temporary calm where things seem to be okay and then tensions start to build again and the cycle continues. So when that pattern has become the norm, when it has become a recurring pattern, what happens is you are navigating within that cycle. You tend to be at the beginning walking on eggshells trying to prevent a blow up. Then something happens and you can't prevent being harmed when the violence occurs. What's really important is that you start to recognize that what is happening is abuse because that's very difficult for many people. I have heard so many stories from women saying, until I started hearing other people talk about it, I didn't realize that what was happening to me was abuse. I thought it was just what happens in a marriage. I thought it was just normal. I thought it was just something wrong with me. So recognizing that what's happening is abuse is a very big step. Usually what follows that is realizing that escape is necessary. And I've often heard this characterized by women who have reached this point as you know, recognizing that the next time he or she is going to kill me. And so I've got to get out. Once that realization happens, that's when you can start to search for support and for resources and start to create a plan. And it's really important to find those resources and to find people who can help you create that plan because it's never straightforward getting out. I'm sure you heard the statistic that it takes most women seven attempts to actually successfully leave. And so, you know, once it's become a recurring pattern and you realized that what's happening is abusive and that you need to get out of it, finding a resource that can help you and finding people who are willing to help you with the process is key. After all of that, when a woman in this situation decides to escape, creates a plan, and actually puts the plan into action, that can actually be the most dangerous time for her. I have even seen statistics that show that a woman is 70 times more likely to be murdered in the few weeks after leaving her abusive partner than at any other time of her relationship. That is a pretty shocking statistic. So what can you do when you reach the point where you have a plan, you have the resources, you have the support, and you are executing that plan? Here are some things to think about. 
You're going to have a new location and you need to keep that secret. You probably are going to get a new phone that you also need to keep secret because you're trying to minimize the likelihood that your abusive partner is going to be able to track you down and find you. For those of us who use social media, it's super important not to give any clues about where you are and what you're up to in your social media. You will need to make plans for what to do if your abuser shows up at your workplace or in your home, as well as the common places that you go, for example, to the post office or the grocery store or to a fitness club. Because I have heard so many stories from women who have thought that they had made it out freely, safely, and were past the danger time, only to have the abuser burst into their workplace, for example. So you need to have plans for what am I going to do if my abuser follows me here or finds me here? You can't rely on a protective order or a restraining order to keep you safe. Those do not help in the moment. No abuser is going to respect a piece of paper being waved in their face. So don't rely on those. Take your personal safety into your own hands. This is where taking a self-defense program can be extremely useful. I would highly suggest that if it's possible, you consider getting yourself a trained protection dog. These dogs are absolutely amazing. Well-trained protection dogs are with you all the time and will leap into action when danger presents. It's a far more reliable way to have protection than carrying a firearm or another external defensive tool. And these dogs can be pretty damn terrifying when they're in action. So I would suggest that you look into that. Another important step to take as you escape is to do a technology assessment. And there are consultants that you can talk to who can help you identify ways that your ex may be using technology to stalk you. In fact, it's quite possible that they've been doing that throughout your whole relationship and you may not have known. So there are things that you can do to mitigate the likelihood that they can stalk you and track you using technology. The most important thing, in my opinion, for you to remember and to pay attention to is that if you get a bad feeling, listen to it and choose safety. There is absolutely no downside to taking action if something feels off or not quite right. It doesn't have to make sense and you don't have to try to come up with a logical reason why something doesn't feel right to you. But once you've made it out, If you ever are in a situation where something feels a little bit weird, pay attention to that feeling and do whatever you need to do to get to safety. It could actually mean your life. I want to talk a little bit about self-protection learning and self-protection skills and the ways that they can be quite helpful to women who are either still in abusive domestic violence situations or have perhaps been able to get free. So while you're in the situation, doing some self-defense training can help you avoid being in the encounter and it can help you minimize the impact. As you're leaving and right after, that self-protection training can protect you through the most dangerous period of time that you will experience. So here's some reasons why I think it's important for women to get this kind of training. It can be restorative and preventative. Many women who have been through domestic violence situations 
doubt their instincts and intuition. In fact, they have quite often dismissed and ignored those bad feelings that they've had and come to distrust their ability to actually recognize a threat. Many women also have developed feelings of powerlessness and a lack of sense of self-worth because of what they've been through. So taking a great self-protection program can really help to restore their ability to connect to their own power and can help to restore a sense of self-worth. The preventative aspects of taking a self-defense program are pretty clear. Every woman that I've spoken to has expressed an intense desire to not have the same things happen again. They don't want to be in a situation where they get attacked and get hurt. They don't want to be in a situation where they don't know what to do. They don't know how to fight back and they don't know how to get to safety. So taking a great self-defense program can really help with that. Another really cool thing about taking a self-defense program is that women who have been in these situations often have developed some strengths that they may not even know they have. Many of the women that I have worked with have developed a finely honed sense of pre-contact and pre-incident warning signs or indicators. They have learned to recognize when trouble is coming. That's really important, and it's a skill and a talent that needs to be nurtured and developed and honored. Many women have also become quite skilled at defusing and de-escalating situations, either through appeasement, through tactical apologies or distraction, validating and empathizing with the person that they're dealing with. And that ability to talk down somebody who is getting amped up is an incredibly valuable skill. You know, it may not have had all the results that you hoped for when dealing with an abuser, but it's certainly a transferable skill that will help you in many, many other situations where there may be danger. Self-defense training can be transformational. Learning how to recognize the abuser's manipulations and tools, understanding how the brain works and how that contributes to making it very hard to leave a situation, and also understanding how your brain and your body are already endowed with the ability to protect you can be very empowering and transformational. Doing physical training that allows you to rewire your brain's mental blueprint for particular attacks can truly be a game changer. And a great self-defense program will help you learn how to set and hold boundaries. It will help you build confidence that is legitimate confidence. And it will help you develop your personal power and your courage again. So what are some of the things that you should look for? What are some of the things that you want to learn if you take a good self-defense program? Well, there's two key components. One is mental, emotional, and psychological preparation, and the other is physical preparation. Here are some of the basic self-protection skills that you want to learn as part of your mental, emotional, and psychological preparation. You want to know how to set your boundaries and how to maintain them. Recognize that anybody who gets angry over a boundary that you set has another agenda going on. You want to develop your self-awareness and your situational awareness. Trusting your instincts and intuition and making decisions based on that. Valuing that bad feeling that you may get 
that uncomfortable, something's not right feeling, even if there's no logical explanation for it, and making the decision to take action to keep yourself safe. You want to identify what your personal reason to survive a situation is, and also what the cost of inaction or lack of preparation could be for you, for your family, your children, your pets, your coworkers, all the people who care about you. You want to know why it matters that you survive and that you continue to have your life on this planet. You want to look at the psychology of intimidation and reframe that from being what Coach Tony Blower describes as paying more attention to what the other person can or may or wants to do to you than you are paying attention to what you can do to them. You want to learn how to tap into indignation and the power of indignation, that sense of hell no you're not doing this to me. This is not happening. Not today. No way, no how. That power is an amazing strength to tap into that can get you into action and can keep you going until you get to safety. And as part of your mental, psychological, and emotional preparation, you also want to spend some time thinking about what it will take for you to give yourself permission to act to get to safety no matter what. I have spoken to many women who have said that they want to be able to protect themselves, but they're not sure that they could actually do something that would hurt another human being, even if that's the person who has dished out so much pain and abuse to them in the past. And it's not a trivial matter to talk about doing whatever it takes to get safe, because that might include rendering them unconscious disabling them, or even killing them. So that's not a simple, quick, five-minute conversation that you need to have with yourself. That's something that really takes some time and some thought and some care. But you do need to reach the place where you know what you're willing to do in order to keep yourself safe. And you have to give yourself permission to do that. The physical preparation aspects of self-defense are not what you might think. It's not going to a martial arts school and learning choreographed movements of, you know, if he does this, then I'm going to do that. Or if she attacks me like this, then I'm going to do this. It's not if this, then that choreography. It's not complex motor skill movements and patterns that you have to memorize. It starts with learning how to trust your natural reflexes. Those parts of being a human being that are hardwired into us We land on the planet equipped to survive, and we've gotten kind of out of touch with our ability to do that and how our bodies and our brains actually are already equipped to help. So learning how to get in touch with and trust your natural abilities is number one. You're going to want to learn what we call nonviolent postures. Those are different ways to hold your body, different ways to stand, that allow you both to look non-threatening And also set yourself up to be able to protect yourself and even to strike preemptively if you need to. So you're going to want to do a program that teaches you nonviolent postures, how to use them, and how to convert from them into something defensive or something preemptive. 
in lieu of the complex motor skill movements that you have to memorize, you want to find a program that teaches simple gross motor tools, very basic natural movement, and then how to apply those tools onto targets. The targets are the parts of your attacker's body that you are intending to injure, break, and basically render non-functional. An unusual but very valuable aspect of physical preparation is something that you will probably only find if you work with somebody like me who has trained with Coach Tony Blauer, and that is doing something that he developed called emotional climate training. That is training where you take a specific common attack, which could be one that you've already experienced. For many women, that's being choked from the front, either up against a wall or down on a bed or a floor, or it might be something like a slap or a punch to the face. Emotional climate training means that you take one of those attacks and you slow it down and you train your brain to recognize all of the pre-contact cues that come before the actual attack lands on you. And you find all of the time and space that you have in which to move. Going through this training allows you to recognize potential attacks far quicker. And it also trains your brain on different ways to respond to it. So it helps to rewire the experiences that you've had where you've been attacked and you either haven't responded or what you've done has not been effective. And it gives your brain some different software to use in the event that you experience something similar in the future. Along with that kind of emotional climate training, you are going to want to look for training that teaches you what it actually might take, like what the extreme is when people say that you should, quote, do whatever it takes to get to safety. Often they don't actually teach you what that might be. And that's because it's very uncomfortable to go to that extreme. But you want your training to give you the awareness of what that actually might mean and how to do it. Your goal, if you have to go to that extreme, is to render the person attacking you unconscious or to disable them so they can't come after you anymore. And it may actually mean killing them in order to save yourself. And finally, in your physical preparation, you want to learn about various external self-defense tools. You want to learn to carry the ones that you decide you want to have and how to use them when they're appropriate to use. So those might be something like a striking tool, like a coubaton or a tactical pen. It might be pepper spray or a taser. It might even be a firearm. And my caveat here is that those tools are not going to be things that you're going to be able to just whip out and use in an instant. They're something that you have to train with. You have to train in scenarios where you get the practice of actually getting them in your hand and using them. Because without that training, you're probably going to have a moment where you discover that what you thought was going to work isn't going to work. You're not going to be able to get that tactical pen out of your purse. You may not be able to pull that firearm out of the holster. The tool that you thought was going to be in your hand and ready to go may be in your bedside table. So those tools are great things to have, but you have to learn and set your expectations about when they're realistically going to be available to you. You have to understand that if you get ambushed, unless you actually have them 
in your hand and ready to go, they're not going to do you much good. You're going to have to rely on your body's natural response to that ambush to get you through the initial moments. And then when you get yourself into a little bit of emotional control and get some physical control over what's happening, then you may be able to get to one of those external tools to use them. Here are some challenges for women who are seeking self-defense training. Some women are still in the abusive situations and they want to learn how to avoid injury, but they don't want the abuser to know that they're getting the training. And that is pretty darn tricky. So they need either a way to learn locally that won't get discovered, or they need a way to go on a trip or a retreat to learn what they need to know without arousing suspicion. That's why I created an online program that can be consumed in short pieces and installments at your own pace and that lives out on the internet as opposed to on your laptop or on your phone where it might be discovered. That's the Born to be a Badass Prep School. That's also why I started offering VIP personal training sessions at a very secure location up in the Sierra foothills which is a place that women can come either for a day or for two days by themselves or with a couple of companions to go on retreat and to have an intensive experience of training. For women who have already experienced domestic violence and who have escaped the situation, quite often what they're looking for is a way to avoid being attacked again. And they're looking for a better way to deal with the attacks that they've encountered in the past. So for women who are in that situation, they're going to want to find a coach to work with who can customize the training to their specific needs. They're going to need somebody who can address the mental, emotional, and psychological preparation and components of training as well as the physical. And it's really important that the physical component of training goes at their pace. If you have already experienced violence, it's really important that any physical self-defense hands-on training that you do is very sensitive to what you've experienced and that it goes along with what you are ready to work on when you're ready to work on it. So that may mean that you want to work with a woman until you start to get comfortable with it and then introduce a male role player that you can then step up your game and expand your, your comfort zone with. And last but certainly not least, in fact, in my opinion, the most important consideration when you're looking for a self-defense program is that you need to work with a coach that you can trust. You need to work with a coach that understands what domestic violence is, how domestic violence can affect people, and how working through the issues and the damage that has been done through experiences of domestic violence can be helped by doing self-defense training, but also who is very, very cautious and careful about how they introduce the physical components of training as well as how they actually talk about the mental, emotional, and psychological aspects of violence. Because the last thing that you want is to go to work with somebody to make your life better by developing new skills and increasing your confidence and increasing your sense of power and courage, and then find yourself being re-traumatized, becoming more scared and 
actually taking a hit to your confidence. And that to me would be the absolute worst outcome would be for somebody to come to train and to actually increase the amount of trauma that they felt rather than help them to move through it and to heal. So self-defense coaches aren't therapists, but working with a really good coach that you can trust can be very therapeutic. So those are my thoughts on domestic violence and the relationship between domestic violence and learning self-defense. One of the things that keeps me up at night is thinking about the number of women who are in relationships that should be loving and caring and nurturing, but that are in fact abusive and violent. I have a deep commitment to reaching out and helping anybody who is in that situation or who has survived that situation and is rebuilding their life. I am committed to doing everything possible to enhance their ability to live safely. That's why I created my online program, the Born to be a Badass Prep School. It's why I created my live hands-on event, which is the Born to be a Badass Breakthrough Retreat. And it's why I started offering the VIP and small group retreat trainings up in the Sierra foothills in a location where women who want to get this kind of training but are afraid of being followed or stalked or discovered by their abuser, where they can actually come and they can do that in about as secure a location as possible. I want to encourage every single listener to this podcast to look in your local community and find the organizations that support women who are in or are escaping or have managed to survive a domestic violence situation. Look in your community and find out how you can help support those organizations, whether that's with financial support or through volunteering or perhaps even offering services that you have that would be helpful. If you've been thinking about doing it and you just haven't done it, now's the time. Thank you for listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. To learn more about previous guests, to listen to past episodes, and to get to know me a little bit better, you can go to my website, which is www.cynthiajolicoeur.com. You can follow me on Facebook. And if you would like to be part of the conversation, you can join my private Facebook group, which is the Born to be a Badass Collective, and the page that has been set up for the podcast so that you can be notified of new episodes and get a little bit of a heads up about what's coming down the pipe for you. That is the Born to be a Badass media page on Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. And those are some ways that you can reach out and connect with me. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.